This is Salt and Spine. It wasn't really until I left that I realized that, okay, nobody's ever heard of hot dish outside of, <laughs> you know, the upper Midwest. And right, my husband right. was like, what is jello salad? Like, those, that's <laughs> right, an oxymoron. Yes. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yes. And, you know, so it wasn't just those dishes that are like a little more kitschy, but being on the coast, sometimes people think that the whole Midwest is just flyover country and there's not necessarily anything interesting coming out of there, which I, d- I think is definitely not true. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Marin Ellingbo King. Now, Marin is a talented food stylist and recipe developer who's been making a name for herself in the culinary world, partly through her passion for Midwestern cuisine. After growing up on a farm outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, she spent years working in restaurants in both her home state as well as Wisconsin and then New York City, gaining valuable experience in both the front and back of the house before transitioning to a career in food media. In 2011, she became an editor at Food & Wine magazine, before later moving to the Bay Area, where she began assisting local food stylists. Today, she's a full-time food stylist and recipe developer based back in her home state of Minnesota. Her first cookbook is Fresh Midwest, Modern Recipes from the Heartland, and it's a tribute to the rich and diverse flavors of Midwestern cuisine, with, of course, modern interpretations. We're thrilled to welcome Mar into the podcast today and learn more about her culinary journey and the inspiration behind her cookbook. You don't want to miss our chat. We cover everything from hot dish to jello salad. So let's head now to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Marin Ellingbo King joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Marin. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, and welcome back to the Bay Area. I know you lived here for a while thank and you. moved away, so welcome back. Thanks, I did. Yes. yes, it's been two years since we've been back, so it's been it's been nice to see friends and family and sure. some of the familiar sites. Sure. Well, we're here to talk about your, your first cookbook, uh, Fresh Midwest, Modern Recipes from the Heartland, but we want to start as we do with all of our guests by learning a little bit more about you, how you got to this career, um, your love for food, and then dive into the book a bit. So um, let's go all the way back to the beginning. You grew up (laughs) in, uh, you live in Minnesota now, and that's also where you grew up, right? You grew up on a farm outside of St. Paul? Yep, that's correct. Um, Yes, so grew up just outside of the Twin Cities, went to school in Minneapolis, um, which is where I live now with my husband and son. And I... First became interested in food, I think, in high school, really. My mom was has always been a great cook, so I was definitely influenced by her abilities in the kitchen. Um, She's also a really good baker. And my first kind of real job when I graduated from high school was as a line cook um, at a little restaurant in Wisconsin. Okay. And I kept that up um, during summers between college. And then when I graduated from college, I moved to New York. I worked in restaurants for a little while. Um, it was the recession, so jobs were sure. hard to come by. But then ended up getting a job uh, as an editorial assistant at Food & Wine magazine. Coincidentally, my boss was also from Minnesota, <laughs> so okay. I, don't, I don't think that hurt. Um, yeah, the Midwestern connection yes, helps. Ex- yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, and I worked there for about five years, became an assistant editor, and just learned all about how a magazine was run, all about how sure. they test their recipes and that whole process. And I also worked with the style editor on a number of different shoots while I was there. So that's kind of where I learned about food styling um, as a yeah. career. Uh-huh. And just 
became really interested in that. So when I moved to the Bay Area in 2015, it was kind of with the idea of starting to freelance and hoping eventually to become a food stylist. Um, so while I was here, I worked on a whole bunch of different things, um, including assisting a number of local stylists. I also worked for a culinary events company called Just Add Salt. Um, I did some recipe development and videos with Sunset Magazine, uh-huh. um, just kind of all different freelance projects, um, which was great experience. And then pandemic hit. My husband sure. and I had already been talking about potentially moving back to the Midwest for a variety of reasons. And that just kind of emphasized why we decided to do that. Um, yeah. So we moved to Minneapolis in uh, September 2020. And I've since been a lead food stylist um, and also spent much of last year working on this book. <laughs> sure. So. Yes, of course, they yes. take time. You, you mentioned your mother was a great cook, uh, baker. What sorts of foods were you growing up with? I know you have Scandinavian heritage, mm-hmm. Midwestern recipes for folks who are familiar with yes. Midwestern cuisine mm-hmm. are obviously the focus of your book. But talk a little bit about what foods you grew up with. And you said you were interested in food from an early age, but like when did you sort of start actively cooking and, and getting involved in the kitchen? Yeah, well... I would say the Midwestern comfort foods are certainly a staple, Mm -hmm. um, especially when we would gather with extended family or go to either my grandparents' houses, plenty of hot dish and chili and, you know, hearty foods like that. Exactly. Yes, yes. Um, My mom, you know, I think she started subscribing to Bon Appetit and Gourmet in like the early 80s, which was not necessarily typical, I think, for somebody in the Midwest at that time. Um, So she's... She's always been interested in food, and I think that definitely influenced me. I remember looking through all those back issues when I was little and just, like, being in awe of the photography and these, like, elaborate desserts or roasts or things like that. Um, And not to generalize, but different, sort of different than, like, the community cookbooks and other things that are sort of central to the Midwestern cooking. Mm -hmm. So having some of that maybe global influence. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, the Twin Cities were becoming a more diverse um, cultural center sure. at that time. But she cooked a lot with, you know, fresh vegetables. She's a really avid gardener. And so we would, especially in the summer and fall, um, you know, she cooks with tons of tomatoes and zucchini and squash and like basically anything that's grown um, at their house. Mm-hmm. She's also, I think, been influenced a lot by... Um, traveling some in Europe. So my okay. parents have both become big fans of Italy, uh, uh-huh. understandably. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so they they definitely eat a lot of pasta and bruschetta, you know, like fairly simple Italian dishes like that. But yeah. that definitely influenced me as well. Um, I ended up studying abroad in Italy while I was in college. Okay. So. And you worked, you know, in restaurants for a bit before making the jump mm-hmm. into food media and with this, this job at Food & Wine. Was that a intentional move away from restaurants or was it sort of just it, following an opportunity? It was. Yeah. Um, I loved working in restaurants, but even when I was, you know, 22, I knew I didn't want to open my own restaurant. I didn't really have dreams of becoming a chef. Sure. Um, it's so much fun, but it's such hard work and yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you um go to college, you end up moving to New York and then, you know, from New York to the Bay Area. How mm-hmm. does your you write about this a little bit in the book, but how does 
your um, relationship to cooking change when you leave the Midwest and and live on the coasts? You know, it's been interesting moving back to the Midwest, I would say. I feel like when I left, I was still very much learning and just being exposed to different people and different cultures. Um, So living in New York and then the Bay Area were both just like very eye-opening experiences, I think, in terms of types of food that was available and, um, you know, all these different flavors and, like, ingredients that you could get much more easily here. And I think since I've moved back to the Midwest, I've brought some of those influences with me. Um, As um, you see in the book, you know, it is Midwestern food, but it's also updated. So it uses all fresh produce. It uses a little more spice and like acidity and it's not those bland dishes that uh the midwest sometimes gets a reputation (laughs) for yes Yes. sometimes fairly um so i appreciate some of the fresh updates um So when you decided to work on this book, um, I understand that a lot of the recipes are sort of built on family recipes and mm-hmm. you you inherited some archives from some of your grandmothers and even great-grandmothers and their recipes. Can you talk about how those sort of became the building blocks for this? Yeah. So when I was growing up, I wasn't necessarily interested in that type of food. Like it was kind of just there. It was sure. like what you ate. It was what we always had at Easter. It was... You know, hot dish was just something that was easy to put together on like a cold night and you could feed a crowd with it. You know, it wasn't really until I left that I realized that, okay, nobody's ever heard of hot dish outside of, (laughs) you know, the upper Midwest. And my husband was like, what is jello salad? Like, that's (laughs) an oxymoron. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, (laughs) And, you know, so it wasn't just those dishes that are like a little more kitschy, but um, being on the coast, sometimes people think that the whole Midwest is just flyover country and there's not necessarily anything interesting coming out of there, um, which I, you know, I I think is definitely not true. And um, yeah, when my grandma died, when I was in high school, these recipes that she had had from her mother and then also her archive of you know, recipe cards uh, just kind of sat there for a number of years. And sure. it wasn't really until I was in my 20s and I was working in food, but not living in Minnesota, that I asked my dad if I could take a look at them and just ended up, you know, going through them multiple times and reading all these recipes and just looking at their notes of like, this is, you know, from Ida <laughs> or right. like, this is good for company. And um my great-grandmother, Judith, I she died when I was three, so I didn't okay. really ever know her. I only knew her through stories that I had heard from my parents and my grandma to an extent. Um, but even my grandma, too, you know, I, I never really knew her as an adult. Um, and it felt like looking through all these recipes, I got to know them a little bit better. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing their handwriting and kind of imagining them making this you know, noodle dish for my dad and his brothers um, or for their grandkids for a, you know, bigger family gathering. Sure. And yeah, I I just saw it. It didn't seem like there was, there were a lot of Midwestern books on the market. Um, So started to kind of think about doing a book 
yeah, I'd had the recipe cards, I think, for a couple of years at that point okay. and was, you know, just sort of ruminating on it and eventually started to put together a proposal. And did you know it would be like an updated version? I, I know you, you also were at an IACP conference where you kind of had yes. like a push to like, oh, I should really make this into a book. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that was really kind of the the spark that started to light the fire. Um, I went to a few seminars about cookbook writing uh-huh. and um, they were, you know, very informative and helpful. And then I was kind of like, okay, this is like something I could potentially do. I knew I didn't want to use processed ingredients. Um, I wanted to take some of these foundational recipes, but really update them for how I eat now. And I think how a lot of people eat now, um, you know, I, I think with many of those recipes, those shortcuts made a lot of sense. And it was also just based on what was available at the time. But, you know, luckily now we have a lot more access to good produce throughout the year um, all over the country and more international ingredients. You're not necessarily just looking at your standard, like, four spices. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you mentioned there aren't a lot of Midwestern cookbooks on the market. And you Mm -hmm. write in here, too, that the ones that, you know, have existed until relatively recently typically were sort of focused on, you say, compendiums of church recipes or like homestead cooking. Um, Did you look at a lot of, you know, other Midwestern cookbooks? Did you sort of think about how yours would fit into that that? genre? I did. Um, Yeah. Amy Thielen's New Midwestern Table was definitely a big influence. Um, Also, Molly Ye's Girl on the Range um, is a great resource. I also looked at a lot of Scandinavian cookbooks, actually. Um, My background is Scandinavian. So I was kind of trying to pull some influences from those foods that they, you know, now make currently in Scandinavia while also looking at some of the dishes that my ancestors and many of the people who've who immigrated to the Midwest have really like held on to for the last number of generations. Um, but yeah. I am happy to say that it seems like it's changing. It's a big it's a big fall for Midwestern cookbooks. It is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just talked to Paula Forbes recently from oh, Stain Page News too about, and she's a Midwesterner. I'm a Midwesterner. Yeah, you're a Midwesterner. So we were talking it. about this this um, influx, it seems, of attention on Midwestern um, food and Midwestern cooks. So. Maybe we should pause for just a minute before sure. we get too deep into Midwestern um, cooking, because I'm also from the Midwest, so I think I'm making some assumptions. <laughs> and you you alluded to the That's fact true. that people yeah. you know might not know what hot dish is. So yes. maybe we want to define a few of these things um, before we talk about Midwestern cooking a bit more. So hot dish is... Hot dish is, I mean, I guess you would say it's a casserole. Uh-huh. Um, but usually there are four parts. There's a protein a vegetable, a starch, and then some kind of creamy sauce. Sure. So the classic is ground beef, you know, canned green beans, mm-hmm. cream of mushroom soup mm-hmm. topped with tater tots. Right. But there are all kinds of variations. Um, and in my book, I I think I have three or four. Yeah. None of them use canned cream of mushroom soup. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and really, it is like a, a framework that you can really mm-hmm. build on because you have several. I know Molly Ye's first book mm-hmm. has a couple, including like a, she has like a Moroccan one. Yes. So it's really like just this framework of those yep. four sort of um, elements that you noted. And then we also mentioned jello salad. So it might be good <laughs> to define that too, which you do have a recipe for in here. I do. And I was pleased to see you've updated it a bit with you know, pomegranate <laughs> juice um, and 
and some other things. So what is a jello salad for folks who might not know? Well, I guess you can call it a salad if you put fruit in it, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, generally I would say it's either a molded gelatin sure. uh, concoction or the classic one we would have in my family is um, cherry jello with canned cherries and then whipped cream on top. Yes. Probably yeah. cool whip in the old days, but uh, yeah, right. Now my mom will make fresh whipped cream. <laughs> and uh, did you ever have cottage cheese in yours? Okay, I did not. Okay. But some people do. I some know. people yeah. do. Mm-hmm. There's often like canned pineapple or Yeah. You know, you can you can have different colors and right. flavors. <laughs> right. And yes. Things like that. And and you updated it with pomegranate juice. I did. Right? Yeah. yeah. So for this one I used um fresh berries uh-huh. and uh the the part with the berries is white grape juice actually, and okay. then um, the other layer is pomegranate juice okay. and yeah. uh, unflavored gelatin. So you sure. really get the juice flavor. Yes, I love that. <laughs> this whole um, genre, I guess, of salads in yes. the Midwest um, could be very confusing to people who did not grow up with them. Mm-hmm. You also have a, a take on another common or popular sort of uh, Midwestern salad, which is the <laughs> Snickers salad. Yes. Um, so I was <laughs> surprised and happy to see that in the book, too, which you update a bit, too, by removing the Snickers and getting down to sort of the core elements. But could you tell us what a Snickers salad is I and do, how you updated yeah. it? Um, well, f- I think firstly, which some people may have um, some contention with, is that it's in the desserts chapter and not in the salads chapter. Right, yeah. That was the Snicker bar salad was always something that was served alongside the main course. So right, we yes. would often have it. On Easter, with the rest of the buffet, you've got your ham, you've got your, you know, scalloped potatoes and creamed corn, and then you have this apple candy bar salad, which, of course, when I was a kid, was like the best because right. you could just pick out all of the Snickers bars, and you're like, "Mom, I'm having salad." <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but the way my grandma made it was uh, Granny Smith apples, Cool Whip. I think there was kind of a pudding part like to a the mix? to the yeah uh-huh. to the. Uh, dressing i guess okay yes <laughs> and then um cut up snicker snickers bars right right and i mean it's it's great yeah it's delicious yeah <laughs> um what's not to like yeah but in my version um it's still granny smith apples uh you chill everything so it gets like nice and cold and then um i use fresh whipped cream and chopped dark chocolate and drizzle it with caramel sauce and yeah. um, some chopped nuts. So you still get those Snickers flavors, but, you know, right. it's not processed. Um, right. And yeah, it's actually very refreshing. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, I also was really, uh, I also really loved this almond kringle recipe you have because of the way that you discovered it, right? It was in a letter that yeah. you found to your great grandmother mm-hmm. from her niece is that yes. right yeah yes that's Which is such correct. a fun way of like how recipes used to be shared right? right yeah exactly um i really loved that too and you know i think that was the case with many of the recipes they were shared you know from friends or from family um sometimes they had notes about who had written it but not always sure um yeah, I love that. We've mentioned a couple recipes, but I'm I'm curious, particularly for maybe people, home cooks who are not super familiar with Midwestern foods, if there are recipes that you would suggest they start with, like what's a good sort of introduction in your book to Midwestern cuisine? I mean, I think the hot dish is a good sure. introduction. Yeah. Um, and all of the ones in in my book, I think are, are pretty f- family friendly. Um, 
One of my favorites is the wild rice and butternut squash yeah. and chicken hot dish. Um, it's just, it's like super comforting and just the, the combination of wild rice and chicken and squash is just like really nice fall flavors. Um, yeah. but you know, you kind of start to get the idea of what a, what a hot dish is yes. is all about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was also really surprised to read about the help me with the pronunciation, Kraftskiva menu. Yeah. Is that I right? Think that's how you okay. Say it. Yeah. Um, which is a crawfish boil essentially, mm-hmm. right? And I did not realize that that is a, a meal that is common in Sweden and of course big Swedish population mm-hmm. in Minnesota. And I also had no idea that crawfish live in, in lakes and ponds in yes. in Minnesota. Yes. Is that the case in Iowa or no? Maybe it's too... It may be, okay, <laughs> uh, but not that not that I'm aware of. And we never had, cra- I'm, you know, growing up in Iowa, I never had a crawfish boil. I always thought of it as a thing in the southern, the, south. the southern United States. So sure. I didn't know it was common in Minnesota in some sense. Well, I don't know that it's common. I can't okay. say that it's something that I grew up with. Okay. Um, it was more something I learned about later on. Um, there was actually there was a really great restaurant in Minneapolis called. The Bachelor Farmer, sure, and yeah. they started doing like a midsummer crawfish boil um, pre-pandemic when they were still open. Yeah, uh, and it was in this the Swedish style, and I didn't really eat what I guess we called them crayfish actually. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> in the Midwest. Okay, um, I didn't eat them growing up, but they definitely did live in the pond behind my house because my sister and I would try to catch them sometimes. Okay, um, but we. would we let them live. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I when I was uh, starting to think about the recipes for this book and starting to do research into more Scandinavian um, traditions, I just, I hadn't really realized that either, that there was this kind of tie from Scandinavia to the US and um, the South in, in this case. But I just really love the whole idea, I think, in both traditions of gathering a bunch of people have over this, you know, big communal table and just having everything spread out and you kind of just grab what you want. And um, in yeah. Sweden, it's a midsummer tradition. So there's actually, I think it's almost always eaten outside. They put okay. up these like paper lanterns. There's kind of this whole ethos to it. So I tried to capture a little bit of that uh, sure. in my recipe too. And we mentioned, you know, um, Swedes, Minnesota is the home to the largest population of Swedes outside of Scandinavia, right? You mentioned that in the book. Yes. Or one of the largest. So. Yeah, one um, of the largest. <laughs> but also, you know, the Twin Cities, Detroit, like the, these Midwestern hubs have become so much more diverse mm-hmm. in the past couple decades. And, you know, of course, expectedly, the cuisines have become so much more diverse, too. So I'm, I'm curious, too, as someone who moved away and now has moved back, how much of that you're seeing, how much that Midwestern yeah. food culture has changed in the past couple decades. Yeah, I mean, I would say it has definitely changed from when I was growing up, and I think that is only a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are so many really amazing restaurants in the Twin Cities now, and it's also now home to the largest population of Hmong and Somali people um, in the United States. Okay. So there's a lot of that influence, especially when you go into certain neighborhoods. There's a huge um, Hmong marketplace. I believe it's in St. Paul. And then there are 
all these chefs who are kind of getting recognition all over the country, which I think is really amazing. Um, you know, just to name a few, um, Sean Sherman, mm-hmm. who's the the sous chef and his restaurant, Awamni, just won um, best restaurant of the year, I think, for James Beard. Yeah. Um, also and, has a great cookbook. Too. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Um, and Kim was just on the chef's uh-huh. table. Yeah. And she has several really great restaurants um, around the Twin Cities. And um, Ia Vang has Union Mung Kitchen, which just opened its um, permanent space. And I think he's on a couple of shows, too. So, I mean, it's just, yeah. I think it's just getting really, really interesting. Um, and I love, love to see that. Sure. Well, when we think about classic Midwestern food, though, like <laughs> like what's sort of in your book here, the hot dish and, and um, the jello salad and all of those <laughs> things, um, what do you sort of, you know, we've talked about some of the connotations, too, that like Midwestern food can be bland or some of those um, stereotypes that non-Midwesterners may have. What do you sort of hope people are taking away from your cookbook? Are you trying to sort of combat some of that? Is your audience... Midwest, do you envision your audience as primarily Midwesterners, primarily non-Midwesterners? Like, what's the hope with this book? I think it's sort of twofold. Um, I'm I'm hoping to that it will appeal both to Midwesterners and also maybe non-Midwesterners sure. or people who have who grew up in the Midwest but maybe have moved away. Sure. Um, so you know, I wanted it to be sort of this blend of nostalgia, but also some new ideas. Um, So like I was on a radio show a couple of weeks ago and I got a question from an older woman who it sounded like had a lot of these recipes that were similar to the ones I was drawing inspiration from. And she was, you know, just asking about, she was saying she can't cook any of them anymore because there's so much salt and she really has to Mm. limit the salt in her diet. Um, I I talked a little bit about instead of using that cream of mushroom soup, you can make your own bechamel and it really only takes a few minutes and it allows you to totally control what you're putting in the dish. So I hope that it, you know, will appeal to people who are maybe they love these kind of old school nostalgic dishes, but they're looking for different ways to make them, whether because of dietary restrictions or just looking to kind of expand their palate. But then also, yeah, I think for people who maybe haven't been to the Midwest or are not familiar with the cuisine, you know, it could be kind of a new and interesting type of food. Sure. Well, we're strong cookbooks. We've mentioned a couple other authors like um, Amy Thielen and Molly Yeh. I'm curious if there are, obviously those two I think have been folks that you've looked to, but mm-hmm. if there are other authors or particular cookbooks that have been important to you in your career that you turned to as you were making your first cookbook. Yeah, um, definitely Beth Dooley is another sure. uh, big influence. She's written a ton of books. Um all of which are just really well done and researched. And um, she co-wrote Sean Sherman's book as well, actually. yeah. So she's a big influence on the, especially the Twin Cities, but the upper Midwestern um, food scene. You know, my kind of, my, I was was thinking about this when I was writing Bart over here. Uh (laughs) Um, I think the first book that really opened my mind and palette was the um, Bon Appetit, I guess it would be like a compendium. Um, okay. When Barbara Fairchild was still the editor, it was yeah. it's called like the Bon Appetit Cookbook, yes, and I think it came out in one volumes. of the really big ones. Yeah. And I just remember, you know, there's not there's hardly any pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, it's must be like a thousand recipes or something. Right. But 
I just remember paging through that. I think I got it when I was in high school and um, making like creme anglaise and like all this right. stuff that I um, had never had, but sure. was really eye-opening. Yeah. What do you think uh, makes a great cookbook? Well, I think the recipes have to work. That's sure. kind of first. I also love a book that tells a story. You know, I, I love learning about kind of how other people think in the kitchen and just like looking at a set of ingredients that maybe I wouldn't think to use them in that way. But, um, sure. you know, learning about a new technique or just a new way of using a certain um, ingredient. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we always end with little games. So we have our cards <laughs> okay. over here at the oh, ready. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's four four decks for you there. And okay. I thought our theme today, I hope this isn't too hard, is we're going to see if we can hot dish it. All right. Let's, so let's try it. <laughs> we can, you can draw one from each of the four um, stacks there, vegetables, okay. proteins, flavors are like herbs and spices, and then secret ingredients are, are the wild cards. So All right. We'll, we'll see. Hopefully it's... <laughs> <laughs> Not too hard. I, I listened to an episode where there's the secret ingredient was gummy bears. So yeah, I'm that's I the dreaded that. one. That's yeah. the dreaded one. Okay, um, let's let's see what right, we're working so with. Vegetable. Okay, is cucumber. Flavor is mint. Oh boy. Okay. Protein is lamb. Huh. Okay. And the secret ingredient is fish sauce. Okay. All right. So. If I were going to make a hot dish <laughs> with this. It's not screaming hot dish to me. But let's, <laughs> see, not, um, let's see where it goes. No, it's screaming like summer grilling. Yeah. Uh, but let's let's see what we can do. I think I would start with some lamb shanks. Okay. And slow roast that with some um, fish sauce and maybe some other kind of aromatics. Sure. So you get kind of a shredded lamb um, okay. consistency. Yeah. Then I would mix that with maybe a different vegetable like peas. Um, okay. And then uh, how about some rice? We can kind of rice. mix that okay. all together. We'll yeah. bake it in a dish. Um, and then I would put some mint on top. And then I think on the side, I would just serve like a simple chopped cucumber salad with sure. just a little bit of either rice vinegar or white vinegar um and salt yeah i love that <laughs> a touch of freshness <laughs> i was from like the i cucumber. don't know if baked, there is a recipe for sauteed cucumbers in the book yes. but you know baked cucumbers i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah no i like the freshness okay. the pop of freshness <laughs> with the hot dish um do you want to risk it and see if you get an easier sure, or harder sure. one let's, let's do one do more round one. okay <laughs> i feel like that was Relatively challenging. It is challenging. Okay, vegetables, potato. That's great. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> Flavor is cinnamon. Okay. Oh, protein is duck. Oh, and secret ingredient is molasses. Okay. Huh, okay. Okay, okay. So if we were going to hot dish this, I would, I think, go for a little bit of a Moroccan influence. Sure. So roast the duck. You could do a duck breast to make it easier uh, with... Some cinnamon and molasses and maybe like some paprika. Get some of those kind of warm yeah. flavors in there. Right. Um, again, once it's roasted, you can shred that. Then for a vegetable, I mean, you could just keep it simple and toss that with some potatoes and 
mm-hmm. um, or just some roasted potatoes. Okay, like uh, cubed roasted yeah, potatoes? Yeah, cubed roasted okay. potatoes. Um, I suppose you could just roast it all together now, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, and maybe throw some greens in there, like a topped like Swiss chard or kale. Okay, yeah. And um, bake it all together. I mean, you could... If you wanted to make it really rich, you could you could make a bechamel and throw toss that with everything in there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like the Moroccan influence. Yeah. And, and I like that you didn't immediately just go to tater tots when you saw potatoes. <laughs> I mean, that but is the yes. that is the the easy way. I just wasn't sure, you know, with right. duck. It's like it's already so rich. Do you need a right, right, right. fried <laughs> potato on top of that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Exactly. exactly. Well, I think those sound like two great hot dishes. Okay. I, would, I would give both of those a try. Okay, so <laughs> thank you so much for playing along and thank you for joining us on Salt and Spine Martin. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And that's our show today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's episode and all of our shows on our substack at saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Marin Ellingbo King's Fresh Midwest, one for her apple cake and another for a wild rice salad with butternut squash and pomegranates. If you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. We also love to hear your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to our friend Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.